Welcome to The Reading Room. I'm Xeni, the creator of A Writer's Lighthouse. In this podcast, we'll read selected passages from novels, short stories, poetry and more, and break down the prose to identify what makes a story memorable and impactful, and what we can learn from it as writers. We'll be looking closely at some of the most engaging and immersive narratives in literature to harness and identify the devices and methods which capture the reader. In each episode, I'll read an extract aloud before we work through a short, close reading of one or two paragraphs. We'll then finish with an exercise for you to try at home. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Hello writers, and welcome to episode 5 of the Reading Room podcast, halfway into season 1. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the podcast. It means so much to me that you're still here and still coming back to listen. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We have lots of lovely things planned for the next five episodes of the season, which will be ending on December 19th, just in time for the festive holidays. If you have any feedback or any books that you'd like us to look at for the podcast, please do let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Today's episode is dedicated to The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern, a dazzling fairy tale filled with magic, illusion and wonder. We'll be looking at the literary devices used to create and deliver enchantment and intrigue in a magic realism setting. We'll be working through the prologue and the first chapter of part one to explore the devices Morganston deploys to reel us in with magic so beautiful that we feel as though it's part of our everyday lives. As you listen to the reading, I'd like you to think about the narrative style and point of view presented in these passages. How are we drawn into this setting? How is the magic presented to us? What themes can you detect? Are you ready? Then let's begin. Anticipation The circus arrives without warning. No announcements precede it. No paper notices on downtown posts and billboards. No mentions or advertisements in local newspapers. It is simply there. When yesterday, it was not. The towering tents are striped in white and black. No golds and crimsons to be seen. No colour at all, save for the neighbouring trees and the grass of the surrounding fields. Black and white stripes on grey sky. Countless tents of varying shapes and sizes, with an elaborate wrought iron fence encasing them in a colourless world. Even what little ground is visible from outside is black or white, painted or powdered, or treated with some other circus trick. But it is not open for business. Not just yet. Within hours, everyone in town has heard about it. By afternoon, the news has spread several towns over. Word of mouth is a more effective method of advertisement than typeset words and exclamation points on paper pamphlets or posters. It is impressive and unusual news, the sudden appearance of a mysterious circus. People marvel at the staggering height of the tallest tents. They stare at the clock that sits just inside the gates that no one can properly describe and the black sign painted in white letters that hangs upon the gates, the one that reads, opens at nightfall, closes at dawn. What kind of circus is only open at night? People ask. No one has a proper answer. Yet, as dusk approaches, there is a substantial crowd of spectators gathering outside the gates. You are amongst them, of course. Your curiosity got the better of you, as curiosity is wont to do. You stand in the fading light, the scarf around your neck pulled up against the chilly evening breeze, waiting to see for yourself exactly what kind of circus only opens once the sun sets. 
The ticket booth clearly visible behind the gates is closed and barred. The tents are still, save for when they ripple ever so slightly in the wind. The only movement within the circus is a clock that ticks by the passing minutes. The circus looks abandoned and empty, but you think perhaps you can smell caramel wafting through the evening breeze beneath the crisp scent of the autumn leaves. A subtle sweetness at the edges of the cold. The sun disappears completely beyond the horizon, and the remaining luminosity shifts from dusk to twilight. The people around you are growing restless from waiting, a sea of shuffling feet murmuring about abandoning the endeavour in search of somewhere warmer to pass the evening. You yourself are debating departing when it happens. First, there is a popping sound. It is barely audible over the wind and conversation. A soft noise like a kettle about to boil for tea. Then comes the light. All over the tents, small lights begin to flicker, as though the entirety of the circus is covered in particularly bright fireflies. The waiting crowd quiets as it watches the display of illumination. Someone near you gasps. A small child claps his hands with glee at the sight. When the tents are all aglow, sparkling against the night sky, the sign appears. Stretched across the top of the gates, hidden in curls of iron, more firefly-like lights flicker to life. They pop as they brighten, some accompanied by a shower of glowing white sparks and a bit of smoke. The people nearest to the gates take a few steps back. At first, it is only a random pattern of lights, but as more of them ignite, it becomes clear that they are aligned in scripted letters. First, at C is distinguishable, followed by more letters, a Q oddly, and several E's. When the final bulb pops alight and the smoke and sparks dissipate, it is finally legible, this elaborate incandescent sign. Leaning to your left to gain a better view, you can see that it reads, Le Cirque de Rêve. Some in the crowd smile knowingly, while others frown and look questioningly at their neighbours. A child near you tugs on her mother's sleeve, begging to know what it says. The Circus of Dreams comes the reply. The girl smiles delightedly. Then the iron gates shudder and unlock, seemingly by their own volition. They swing outward, inviting the crowd inside. Now the circus is open. Now you may enter. Part 1. Primordium. The whole of Le Cirque de Rive is formed by a series of circles. Perhaps it is a tribute to the origin of the word circus, deriving from the Greek kirkos, meaning circle or ring. There are many such nods to the phenomenon of the circus in a historical sense, though it is hardly a traditional circus. Rather than a single tent with rings enclosed within, this circus contains clusters of tents like pyramids, some large and others quite small. They are set within circular paths, contained within a circular fence, looping and continuous. Friedrich Thiersen, 1892 A dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight, and his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. Oscar Wilde, 1888 Unexpected Post New York, February 1873 The man billed as Prospero the Enchanter receives a fair amount of correspondence by the theatre office but this is the first envelope addressed to him that contains a suicide note, and it is also the first to arrive, carefully pinned to the coat of a five-year-old girl. 
The lawyer who escorts her to the theatre refuses to explain despite the manager's protestations, abandoning her as quickly as he can with no more than a shrug and the tip of a hat. The theatre manager does not need to read the envelope to know who the girl is for. The bright eyes peering out from under a cloud of unruly brown curls are smaller, wider versions of the magician's own. He takes her by the hand, her small fingers hanging limp within his. She refuses to remove her coat despite the warmth of the theatre, giving only an adamant shake of her head when he asks her why. The manager takes the girl to his office, not knowing what else to do with her. She sits quietly on an uncomfortable chair beneath a line of framed posters advertising past productions, surrounded by boxes of tickets and receipts. The manager brings her a cup of tea with an extra lump of sugar, but it remains on the desk, untouched, and grows cold. The girl does not move, does not fidget in her seat. She stays perfectly still with her hands folded in her lap. Her gaze is fixed downward, focused on her boots that do not quite touch the floor. There is a small scuff on one toe, but the laces are knotted in perfect bows. The sealed envelope hangs from the second topmost button of her coat until Prospero arrives. She hears him before the door opens, his footsteps heavy and echoing in the hall, unlike the measured pace of the manager who has come and gone several times, quiet as a cat. There is also a package for you, sir, the manager says as he opens the door, ushering the magician into the cramped office before slipping off to attend to other theatre matters, having no desire to witness what might become of this encounter. The magician scans the office, a stack of letters in one hand, a black velvet cape lined with shockingly white silk cascading behind him, expecting a paper-wrapped box or crate. Only when the girl looks up at him with his own eyes does he realise what the theatre manager was referring to. Prospero the Enchanter's immediate reaction upon meeting his daughter is a simple declaration of, well, fuck. The girl returns her attention to her boots. The magician closes the door behind him, dropping the stack of letters on the desk next to the teacup as he looks at the girl. He rips the envelope from her coat, leaving the pin clinging steadfastly to its button. While the writing on the front bears his stage name and theatre address, the letter inside greets him with his given name, Hector Bowen. He skims over the contents, any emotional impact desired by the author failing miserably and finally. He pauses at the only fact he deems relevant, that this girl, now left in his custody, is, obviously, his own daughter, and that her name is Celia. She should have named you Miranda, the man called Prospero the Enchanter says to the girl with a chuckle. I suppose she was not clever enough to think of it. The girl looks up at him again, dark eyes narrow beneath her curls. The teacup on the desk begins to shake. Ripples disrupt the calm surface as cracks tremble across the glaze, and then it collapses in shards of flowered porcelain. Cold tea pools in the saucer and drips onto the floor, leaving sticky trails along the polished wood. The magician's smile vanishes. He glances back at the desk with a frown, and the spilled tea begins seeping back up from the floor. The cracked and broken pieces stand and reform themselves around the liquid until the cup sits complete once more, soft swells of steam rising into the air. The girl stares at the teacup, her eyes wide. Hector Bowen takes his daughter's face in his gloved hand, scrutinising her expression for a moment before releasing her, his fingers leaving long, red marks across her cheeks. You might be interesting, he says. The girl does not reply. 
He makes several attempts to rename her in the following weeks, but she refuses to respond to anything but Celia. Several months later, once he decides she is ready, the magician writes a letter of his own. He includes no address, but it reaches its destination across the ocean nonetheless. So many thoughts, so many devices. My notes for the close reading today had to be drilled down so that I could apply enough time to each of the sections I'd read and not create too long an episode. I'm also changing things up today by asking questions throughout to invite you to share your thoughts and ideas, either in a podcast review or in our Facebook group to add to the conversation. You can find the link to our community page in this episode's description. So let's begin with anticipation and how the author prepares her audience for the visual excitement of Le Cercle de Rive. How does she draw them into the narrative? One way is with the application of the second-person perspective, you. The narrator knows we are there to witness the wonders of the circus, and we feel acknowledged as visitors to the magic realism of the story. Having the perspective then switched to the third-person omniscient narrator in the first chapter, Unexpected Post, we are further transported into the innermost intimate thoughts and feelings of each character we meet. We are carried away into the story's adventure and become fully absorbed within its magic and all through a simple shift in narrative voice. Through the introduction of anticipation, the reader is prepared for the visual stimulation of the circus. The sheer beauty of the circus captivates its audience while the promise of magic enchants. It is a short passage, but it delivers on the promise of its title. Sight, smell and sensation are also at the centre of the descriptive language used in this passage. The absence of colour adds a layer of visual stimulation and undercuts expectations of what spectators expect of the traditional circus experience. There were no gold or crimsons to be seen. The black and white design focuses the reader's attention on the varying degree, shapes and sizes of each tent and on one aspect of the circus, presenting illusion from the start. The sign that reads, opens at nightfall, closes at dawn, is another topsy-turvy shift of the spectator's expectations. What kind of place is only open at night? Yet, this play on the idea of time and what is considered normal rouses curiosity and the audience patiently awaits the opening. Then, the narrator treats its spectators to the sensation of almost identifying the smell of caramel wafting through the evening breeze. This hint of scent and the sweetness of caramel triggers the connectors in our brains and is a great example showing and not telling in prose. What did you think of the clock motif in this reading? How no one can properly describe it. To have the clock referred to more than once renders it a motif to pay attention to. For example, spectators are spending their time waiting for the circus to start. Just as they feel they want to leave, it begins. This circus opens at nightfall and closes at dawn. It functions outside of normal daytime activities. The name of the circus infers a dreamlike state. What else can we expect to see from the circus of dreams? Next up, Primordium. The two quotes presented before the first chapter add to the theme of magic and wonder. They also tie into the themes of what is reality versus what is an illusion. Friedrich Theerson is a fictional character in the novel, whereas Oscar Wilde is not. This is magic realism at play. I'd love to hear or read your thoughts on these two quotes and what you feel they add to the narrative. And finally, unexpected post. From the magical and the wonderful, we move through another door, this time into the unusual and unsettling, with the arrival of a suicide note carefully pinned to a five-year-old girl. 
What an opening sentence. Oh, the questions we have. When you compare this scene to those in anticipation, anyone would likely experience an undercurrent of unease as to how the storyline will unfold. There is an abundance of detail within the opening paragraph before we even reach the interaction between Hector Bowen and Celia. We see her delivered from the lawyer to the theatre manager to her father's office with little to no interest in providing an explanation. If you have read The Tempest by William Shakespeare, you'll have identified the connection between the protagonist Prospero and his daughter Miranda with Prospero the Enchanter and his daughter Celia. If you haven't read the play, you would still identify that Hector Bowen is hatching a plan to use Celia's gift for his own purposes. The motif of time being magically distorted can be seen in this chapter as well. Let's look at the cold tea in its cup that pools to the floor. The cup was shattered, only to be restored in one piece and to its original temperature, as if no time had passed. As the chapter comes to a close, time is almost glossed over. Weeks pass with Celia in her father's care, and several months pass again before Hector sends his magical letter. We want to know what happened during that time, but we can only guess, and our imagination wonders. Think about the pacing of the prose. Whilst only a short chapter, a small amount of activity is delivered in detail, and then we have a burst of activity with Hector's declaration. It then slows and bursts again with Celia's heated shattering of the cup. There is an ebb and flow to this relationship, which will continue to develop throughout the novel. What is Celia ready for, and to who was the mysterious letter delivered? These are the questions the readers will ask and will keep them turning the page. For today's exercise, I'd like you to explore the idea of illusion in a five-minute brainstorm, writing down any elements and ideas that come to mind, even if they are just associated words. Then, pick one word or idea and write a story that centres around it. For example, an illusion for you might mean a two-way mirror, a hall of horrors, or a mirage in the desert. Start with 15 minutes, If the ideas flow, restart your timer and continue until the flow stops. When you're finished, review your work and consider how the story might develop. Reading it aloud will also help. Thank you for joining me this week. If you haven't already, I hope you'll follow or subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app. We've covered a lot in today's episode, so if you'd like to read the full show notes, including today's exercise, head to a writerslighthouse.com forward slash podcast and search by book title. You can subscribe to the newsletter for more writing tips, prompts and resources to guide your narrative journey when you need it at a writerslighthouse.com forward slash subscribe. It's great that you're here on this journey with me in today's episode of the Reading Room podcast. Until next time, keep reading and writing with your eyes to the horizon.